Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is uh, wonderful to be here with you. Mary and I have looked forward to being here in uh, Gonzales, Louisiana. It is, I think, my first time here. And, uh, and yet, isn't it wonderful in the sovereignty of God that the ties are so many? And I'm so thankful for your pastor, Dr. Law, and uh, for your staff. So many ties and uh, so many common bonds that bring us together. The Southern Baptist Convention brought us to New Orleans. That is, uh, brought Mary and I here. And uh, we were not planning to be here until the Southern Baptist Convention was moved here, as your pastor said. And uh, so now Southern Baptists are invading New Orleans. And uh, New Orleans needs invading, I will simply say. Uh, it, it has been a night. If you know what's gone on in New Orleans for the last 24 hours, you know that it could be that if you were to speak to someone and say anything in the most recent times, you'd say these things took place. The last thing you would expect is the Southern Baptist Convention to be meeting there in the next day. But that's the condition in which we now live. This is now what the world says is the norm. This is all what the world says is to be celebrated. And uh, we need to be centered in the Word of God. I'm going to be turning with you to 2 Peter and 1 Peter and Jude. Don't panic. I want us to see something. Uh, and again, as uh, I want to say how pleased we are to be here, and we see it as God's providence that has brought us here, it's also a sense of urgency. So when Dr. Law had invited me to come, well, I'm coming. But uh, he had also suggested that I help us by God's word to think about what it means to live as Christians in a hostile world. And you know, here's the conceit. The conceit is that contemporary Christians think this is a new thing. This is where the church was born. Now, Pastor Law began this morning by reading from the letter from Jude. Three New Testament letters are most commonly grouped together, and all three of them deal with this theme. That'd be 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. So if you look at New Testament commentaries, they're often written on those three epistles put together. Uh, there is a commonality. It's one of the reasons why they're in such close proximity here towards the end of the New Testament. There's something else here that most people do not notice. And so even before turning into the, the text of direct exposition, I want you to notice something. When people say, where do you get, your, where do you get those doctrines? Where, where, where do you come up with those understandings of the doctrines of the Christian faith? Where do you come up with the doctrines of grace? I just want to point out all you have to have are three letters in the New Testament, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, and all you have to have is the address. So maybe it'd be profitable for us to take just a moment and see that. Let's begin where Pastor Law read the text in the book of Jude. Notice in 1 Peter, in 2 Peter, and in Jude, what follows immediately the word those. By the Holy Spirit, Peter and Jude are writing to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they address, using the typical letter form of the time, they say to whom they're writing, to those. To those who? 
Well, just look. Jude, chapter 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So, right there, effectual calling. But explains how the church becomes the church, how members become members of the church, how Christians become Christians, believers become believers. It is because not not just that we are called, but we are called effectually. We, We are called by a sovereign who calls us unto himself through the blood of the Son. And so when Jude is addressing the church in this hostile age, he begins by saying to those who are called and then... Behind that, of course, the great love, the grace of God, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So Jude here writes to a church, a church in trial, a church facing hostility. It's this church, he says, that they must keep the faith, maintain the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. It is he who warns against unbelief and indeed an apostasy which is to come. But as for the true church, how does he define it here? Beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. We do not keep ourselves to Jesus. We are kept by the power of the Father in the Son, kept for Jesus Christ. Okay, look back to 2 Peter, just a few pages back. Same word we're going to be looking for, those to those. Who, who, who are these who are those in Second Peter? Look at verse 1 again. To those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, to whom is Jude writing? We saw. To whom is Peter writing by the Holy Spirit? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And, and, and so who's the ours here? The best understanding of what Peter means there is as the apostles. This is one of the most amazing things. I can remember when I was a little boy, first noticing that there were churches that uh, had strange names. And uh, just driving along as a little boy, riding in the car, you know, I'd be looking at these names and, and I don't mean strange like Presbyterian and Lutheran. I mean, strange like New Horizon Apostolic Church, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that I, and, and I didn't know a whole lot about sociology, but I knew there was a difference between the big church downtown with a steeple and the church out on the frontage road, out on the interstate. That's where the apostolic church was. But I remember thinking about this. Well, you know, I think we're all supposed to hold to an apostolic faith. We're supposed to have the faith. That's the whole point of Jude, right? The faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Continue in the apostles' teaching. But you know what? One of the most amazing truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the apostles have no more gospel than you have or I have. They are not saved in such a way that their salvation is in any way distinct from us. And the righteousness which has come to them, the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son's own righteousness imputed to believers by the Father, evidenced by faith. We have the same salvation as theirs. Peter here is writing to the church saying, By God's grace and sovereignty, you have the same righteousness I have. Equal standing. And this is by the righteousness, the imputed righteousness the New Testament tells us. 
of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look back to 1 Peter. Look for the word those. Again, verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So in Jude and 2 Peter and 1 Peter, we've got to look to the word those and look with great care to, who, to what follows because as you see right here, the stakes seem to get a bit higher. First of all, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, let me tell you how you, we, we can be tempted to read this. And that's the reason why I wanted to go from Jude to 2 Peter to 1 Peter. We're going in reverse canonical order. We're doing so for a reason. And the reason is we want to make certain we do not make a category error in reading the scripture here. Because I believe that Christians throughout most of the last two millennia have been in danger of reading this wrongly. Just hear it again. Let's look at the beginning. The entire salutation that Peter offers here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Here's the category error. You'll notice in 2 Peter, we've looked to it, you notice in Jude, we read it, saw it together. There is no question that we, meaning Christians, in the year 2023, are right in the center of the bullseye of what follows the word those. The conceit, the error for many Christians is somehow believing that it's different in 1 Peter. Now, one of the reasons that I think we've misread this text is because we don't live in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, or Bithynia. Now, I have been to some of those places, not to all of them, or to the places that were formerly called these names. And we're primarily talking about Asia Minor. And, of course, that's where so many of the letters of Paul were written as well. That's where so many of the first century churches were located there in the Roman Empire. And what we would now know as the East, they would at one point become part of Byzantium in the Eastern Empire. And then in the 15th century, they would become forevermore a part of, well, not forevermore, excuse me, but until now part of the Islamic world. But the point is that those were churches that experienced so much of the early gospel, the power of the gospel. They were also churches that experienced so much of the early persecution. It's tempting for us to look at that list and say, okay, these are the Christians then, back then and back there, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, we're not there. But brothers and sisters, we're there. Here's the point. It is an error to believe that somehow we are less elect exiles than they were. Here's where Christians, and by this I mean Bible Christians, 
conservative Christians in the United States, doctrinally minded Christians, biblically minded Christians, we are awakened to the fact that our cultural predicament, our cultural context is not what we thought it was. For the last several centuries, Christians in the West, and by that I mean Western civilization, have lived in a context in which we believed that at least the cultural morality and the structural mandates of Christianity and the overarching influence of Christianity so dominated the culture that we were not in this culture living as exiles, we were living in this culture as residents. That was a misreading. But we certainly understand that now the rules are fundamentally changed. If nothing else, it tells us that we actually do live in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We just didn't know we did. And now we know we do. You can put Louisville, Kentucky on that list. You can put New Orleans, Louisiana on that list. You can put Gonzales, Louisiana on that list. Anywhere the church is found, the church is found as a congregation of elect exiles. Now, both of those words turn out to be of crucial importance. Both of those words, because it's not just exiles. Everyone in the ancient world already knew what an exile was. And, and to me, an exile is the most precarious position imaginable, especially in the context of Rome, because if Rome considered you an exile, that meant you had no inherent right to be there and you had no rights once there. And it, it was an extremely precarious existence. But the first word is elect. It turns out that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is made up of exiles. We have no particular home, and every place can be our home, as the early church came to understand. And it's because we may have a passport, we may have a citizenship. Even the Apostle Paul had Roman citizenship, and he invoked it. But our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And there is no earthly empire we can trust. There is no earthly sovereignty that will not turn eventually into the demonic. There is no safety. The Protestant establishment in the United States was once solidly in control. You may have noticed that is no longer the case. The situation once was that the powers that be in the political sphere came to us and said, what should our morality be? What should our basic understanding of human dignity be? This affirmation of human rights, where do we find that? How do we explain that? Well, as we're going to see, we're now in this situation of being exiles. But remember that first word, elect exiles. We did not make ourselves exiles. We are made exiles by the power of the gospel. But we're exiles in this world, in any earthly kingdom, precisely because we have our ultimate citizenship in the heavenly kingdom. And that is not by our application for membership. It is by the election of the sovereign God. It is by God's act electing a people. And, and so the two words are of equal importance. We have only become exiles by the election 
which is God's will. He has elected his church out of the world in such a way that he has chosen. Remember that word was there. We have been chosen. We have been redeemed. We have been given imputed righteousness by faith. We, we are being kept because we are elect. But we are not elect unto earthly safety. We're elected unto salvation destined for glory. But there is no promise in the New Testament that we are elected to earthly security. Indeed, there's every warning that we are not. And just in case we might miss that, here, when you follow the word those, you look at the, at the formula to those, what follows is elect exiles. That's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our generation, for the sake of the church, for the sake of faithfulness, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our grandchildren, we had better figure out what it means to be elect exiles and how to be faithful in an increasingly hostile world. And it is an increasingly hostile world. Let's just be very honest. It is an incredibly hostile world. We're in a world now, and this is the, this is the, common, this is the common stuff I have to deal with every single day. Every day I have to deal with a predicament my grandfathers would never have understood. Now, at times I've made the error of saying I had two grandfathers. Actually, if you're alive, you had two grandfathers. What I mean is I knew my two grandfathers and they had a powerful impact on my life. It was like it was a grandfather committee with my father. And, uh, and the, there was glory in that. I had... I had like three fathers in a glorious sense. I had my father, there's no doubt of his central role, but my father was working. Let's talk about your pastor. Uh, we have a common heritage in the grocery business. My father was the manager of a grocery store. That takes an awful lot of time, an awful lot of time. He was also the most faithful Baptist layman in whatever church we remember, only two churches uh, in two different cities. Uh, where we were members. And in both cases, I grew up with my father being the most faithful layman in the church. And I say that with great, great thankfulness. And, but that meant he was busy a lot of the time. And that meant I was sometimes under somebody else's watch. And that was often one of my grandfathers. And that's when I discovered that my grandfathers, both of whom, one, one of whom was born in the 19th century, and the other one in the first decade or immediately after the turn of the century, I just came to understand they would talk about things with great directness to a grandson. I heard Paul Harvey on the radio mention the word homosexual. Okay? I was 13 years old. When I was 13 years old, it would be very common to have no idea what that meant. I made a huge error in asking my grandfather what it meant. <laughs> and uh, he, he wasn't mad, I guess. I had the sense, it's really interesting, you know, 13-year-old boys, they have a little bit of sense. It's like in the course of the day, there's a limited number of minutes that actually operate by sense. And sometimes that can be survival or non-survival. And I did have the sense not to ask that at the table. But to ask my grandfather, when we got out in the yard, I said, granddaddy, what's a homosexual? 
And he looked at me with a look that withered me. And he just looked at me and he said, that is something you're going to discuss with your daddy. (laughs) And that was a new category for me. And so I just assumed that I had committed some massive felony. The, The point is that I had no idea. My grandfathers lived in a world in which the entire society was in agreement with the Christian church about the definition of gender, the definition of sexuality, the definition of marriage, the definition of what will be a rightful sexual morality. Those are not the only issues that are constitutive of a culture. But even the secular sociologists will say those are the first issues in constituting a culture. So I did not mean to do this, but I'm gonna do this because I'm in the middle of writing something in another context and it came up and I, I was talking with the New York Times It came up last week, so I'm just going to share it with you. One of my favorite names I can just say here is the name Pitarim Sorokin. You you don't care, but it just sounds really cool. (laughs) Pitarim Sorokin. Pitarim Sorokin founded the Department of Sociology at Harvard University. And you're thinking, this is big trouble. Well, no, it became big trouble, but not under Pitarim Sorokin. Pitarim Sorokin fled the Soviet Union where he had twice been under a death sentence by the Bolsheviks. And uh, and he fled and eventually he founded the sociology department at Harvard and he was not a liberal. They fixed that, but they didn't fix Pitarim Sorokin. But Pitarim Sorokin, he, he said this, he said, every single civilization starts with one central responsibility. Now keep this in mind. I'm going to be talking about this on the briefing because we're failing at this responsibility and not by accident. And he just says, Here's the, the, every civilization has a first responsibility and that first responsibility is to have babies. Okay? You don't have babies, you don't have a civilization. The second thing he said, every civilization must do is create a mechanism that makes it more rather than less likely that boys will emerge as functional men. Okay? So that's number two, you'll notice. And Pitarim Siroka is the one who said, there's not a single civilization on planet Earth that's had a major problem with the transition of girlhood into womanhood. There is not a single society on planet Earth that has not had a civilizational crisis in the challenge of getting boys into manhood. That tells you something. There is not one that's had a civilizational crisis helping girls to become women. There is not one that has not had a civilizational crisis helping boys to become men. In other words, that's an entirely different enterprise. But Peter Sorokin also said this. He said, there isn't a society that can survive that isn't clear about all the previous words. Okay? All the previous words like baby, male, female, boy, girl, man, woman. Well, we're living in a society in which there's an open rebellion against this. This is this, we're, we're living in a month right now in which there's this massive effort to try to, to overwhelm an entire society with a different norm, a different truth, a different worldview. It's being buttressed by the elites in society. It's being, it's being propagated by major corporations. It's being undergirded by academia. It's being made slick by Hollywood. It's being enforced from the White House. That's just the leading edge for us to understand that we are now living in exilic existence. If you 
and, and I, I don't want to say that, excuse me. It's not if you, I know who you are. You hold to a worldview that was once the unquestioned norm in, in, in terms of understanding these things and now makes you dangerous in the views of many others. Christians who hold to a biblical worldview are now not considered the pillars of society. We're not even considered, as Winston Churchill once said, supporting buttresses from the outside of society. We're considered threats to the human good. Our understanding of marriage, our understanding of sexuality, our understanding of gender, which by the way, it's even hard for us to use that word because of the, the enormous confusion that's even in the word. We're living in an exilic existence, but it's not just over these issues. These are just the pressing issues that make the headlines and especially these days. We're living in exilic existence precisely because American Christians, and, and, and this is something that weighs on me heavily. American Christians are for the first time coming to understand that our allegiance to God, our allegiance to Christ, is putting us in a very awkward situation with our allegiance to our own country. Every single day, and this is not an exaggeration, every single day, because of the, the, the briefing, and I don't normally talk about that on Sunday morning, but just to explain why this happens, because of the role I play in public dealing with these issues, every single day I now receive communications from soldiers, sailors, airmen, in the United States military saying, I am being given a choice. I have to affirm things I believe to be antithetical to Christianity or I'm putting my service in uniform in danger. I just want to point out, no one 30 years ago could have believed that would be possible. And this is where we are. And I just mentioning those issues, well, for two reasons. First, because biblically, we come to understand very quickly in Genesis how quickly the malformation and misrepresentation of sexuality and marriage and gender, how, how quickly that enters in and poisons everything else. But I'm mentioning it also because this is what we see just about every day. This is what we see put before our eyes. You know, this is one of the most interesting things. Parents, we're, we've now reached a unique point of honesty in our culture. And by the way, that, that can be dangerous, but it's, it's also an opportunity, right? We'd rather have honesty than dishonesty. Well, we, we now have honesty where we have the governors of some states saying, leave the schools to the professionals. Parents have no role here. And, and then we have others saying, look, these are our children, not your children. The, 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 these children have been given to us, they haven't been given to the state. And, and so you see, we're living in, a, in two different places. We're living in, well, we're, the problem is that can happen in the same place. In the state of Virginia, for instance, just even in recent years, you, you've, had, you've had political leaders who have said, parents ought to have a say. And you have political leaders who have just said right out loud, parents have no role in this at all. The children effectively are ours. Well, we're living in a different world. We're, we're, we're living in a world that, as I say, my grandfathers could not have imagined. One of the things I'm thankful I don't have as a responsibility is to now have to go out in the yard and talk about these things with my grandfathers. 
Because they would think, I am nuts. But I'm not now just the grandson of two wonderful grandfathers. I am the grandfather of three precious little children. And I will tell you, there's something deeply biblical about this. By the way, one of the things I talk about, and I hope you see this, I know you do. One of the things we need to understand is that when you have a society that turns its back on the structures of creation, everything bad happens and everything good fails. So that is to say that for one thing, you know why we have such an enormous young man crisis in this culture? It's because nobody made him grow up and they're not getting married. And, and because people are saying, I'm not ready to be married. Okay, I want to turn to the men in this congregation who are married. How many of you were ready to be married when you got married? <laughs> yeah, I know. You did not tell your future spouse that. But the reality is, you had no clue. You had some role models. You had some expectations, but you had no clue. And for most of us, we were good enough actors that our precious young wives did not know that we had no idea what was going on. For a sufficient length of time, we survived. But civilization depends upon young men who aren't ready to be married, getting married, and growing up almost instantly. Fatherhood. Again, a structure of creation. I tell people when Katie was born, our first daughter, our first child, excuse me, only daughter, mother of those grandchildren, when she was born, I had done a stupid husband thing. My wife is right here. She gave me one assignment. It was to bring, we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, and being, Mary's a planner, so she had one of everything pink, one of everything blue. I didn't bring the right thing. Went home, I had the wrong... Our baby went home from the hospital without shoes on because they were the wrong color shoes. Now, the cosmos has survived. <laughs> but it's just to point out, it is different. But I had to go back and get things at the house when there was a break soon after Katie had been born. And when I was on the highway, a truck came along in the middle of the night as I'm just going home to get booties. And that truck nearly pressed me into a cliff. And I had this instant impression, I can't die right now. I'm a father. I've been a father for hours. But it had changed my life so utterly that the first thought I had when I nearly was forced off the road by this truck was, I can't die. That little girl needs me. Again, structure of creation. People grow up. This is how it works. When you start unraveling all of that, it doesn't work. We're in a society unraveling everything all at once. But we're still back here to this opening in 1 Peter. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. You know, a part of what the doctrine of election reminds us of is, is, is not just how it is that God elects and then follows through in his electing love to complete the entire process of salvation in us, the ordo salutis, all the way until the eventual promise of our glorification. It's not just that. It's also a reminder of the fact that the electing God is a God who sovereignly determines exactly when we would be born and exactly who would be our parents and exactly what would be the circumstances of our lives. There is no accidental exile anywhere who is elect. 
It's really true, as you know, in the sovereignty of God, comprehensive for all. But redemptively, in the comprehensiveness of God's act towards us, we need to remember that we are elect to be exiles here, now, for God's glory. That was true of those Christians in the first century in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's just as true in Gonzales, Louisiana. It's just in true, as true in Louisville, Kentucky. It's just as true wherever Christians are found. We are elected to this exilic, redeemed existence in the world for a purpose. That is to say that right now, this church in this community exists to the glory of God and for a purpose that can only be fulfilled, even in a sense of exile, by the fact that this body of believers is here at this time. The same thing's true for Christians wherever we're found. All across the United States, there are people saying, Christians who are saying, how do we respond to this? There's almost a degree of panic among many Christians who are saying, how in the world are we going to be faithful in the midst of this? How are we going to raise our children in the midst of this? I had a mom ask me not too long ago. She said, how in the world are we supposed to raise our children in a world of this kind of evil? The older word would have been decadence. And, you know, I, I had to be careful out of modesty, speaking to this dear young mom, but I wanted to say, hey, you know, <laughs> you go to Pompeii, you look at the walls, you look at the carvings to the brothels in the, in the ground, you, you, you realize that Rome and, and every major city, the Roman Empire, the brothel, it was like the French Quarter. I mean, it was just, you had to, if you sent your 15-year-old son out to pick up, a, you know, some bread, he had to walk through all that. In other words, raising children for Christians now, it, it is different than it was when my parents raised me. There's no doubt about it. As I, as I told you, I wasn't just raised by parents and grandparents. I was raised by a network of neighbors. I was raised by a community. Uh, you know, my friends and I went out to play in the woods and all this all day. We thought we were outside a parental site. Actually, the mom network knew everything about where everybody was all the time. And we found out in due course. Yeah, though that's gone in many ways, especially in much of the United States. That's just, that's just gone. In much of Europe, the, even the, the, the memory of a biblical morality is largely gone. Yeah, that, that's different. But what hasn't changed, what hasn't changed is the fact that the world has always been trying to seduce our children. The fallen world has always been trying to distract and deter the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God. All right. We have a lot left in 1 Peter, so hope you brought lunch. <laughs> just, just notice something, because as you look at the verses that follow, you'll notice that Peter talks about being born again. It's another reminder of the fact in evangelicals in the United States, it's been, it's been a, a, a theme and, and, and it's because it's a proper biblical gospel theme, but it's within the larger context of God's purpose of salvation. It, it is indeed a new birth. It's a born again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know the most amazing thing to me in looking at this, I think of this, because liberals, liberal New Testament scholars will look at this and say, it can't be by Peter. Okay? And, and by the way, their first reason to argue that is because they thought if they could convince people Peter didn't write it, then it would lose its apostolic authority. Okay, but just hold on to it. Why do they say Peter couldn't have written this? Peter was an uneducated fisherman in the first century in the region of Galilee, where the literacy was probably two, three, four percent. The liberals would argue that Peter couldn't even be expected to understand these words, much less to have written these words. And, and what's our response to that, by the way? The first response to that is if the New Testament says Peter wrote it, Peter wrote it. This is the infallible word of God. Every single word is true. And, and that includes the by where that's provided in scripture, it's true. But we have an even more comprehensive explanation for that, and that is this. Simon couldn't have written this. Peter did. Now, remember, he's just talked about being born again. This was a man who was born Simon, but who was chosen by God, made Peter. It's Peter who's writing this. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Remember, again, the New Testament theme that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And, and here you have Peter who's saying, look, you're looking for something that's imperishable, don't look for it here. You're looking for something undefiled, don't look for it here. You're looking for something unfading, don't look for it here. Too many Christians, too many conservative Christians in the United States believed that we could count on this culture holding fast, staying stable, and agreeing with us. You may have noticed that's not true. It's not true. But Peter would say, you should never have counted on that in the first place. Here's what you count on. The inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept. Remember, kept here. It's again very important who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation to be revealed in the last time. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All this is by God's sovereign timetable. He's, full, he's fulfilling all of these promises. He, he made promises to Moses, promises to Abraham, promises to Israel. Now all these things are being fulfilled and we are those who represent that fulfillment. These mysteries are so great that even angels long to look into them, but look finally at what follows in verse 13 and following. <clears throat> so what? So what? 
Therefore, crucial turn, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's needs, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So what are Christians to do in this context? We're to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. That, that, that's important. We, we, we've talked some truth here. And, and, and Christians, as we gather together, Christian parents, I just want to encourage you. Christian parents, I know you do in this church. When Christian parents gather together, you've got to talk honestly about things Christian parents haven't had to talk about. You're going to have to reason together biblically about how we're going to raise our children. How are we going to, how are we going to teach our children? How are we going to, to prepare our children for faithful discipleship in a world like this? How, how, you're going to have to talk together about these things. We have to reason together about these things. We have to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. This requires more than anything else the exposition of the Word of God. That, 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 that's why the most important thing that can happen in the life of your church is what does happen as your pastor opens the Word of God and preaches the Word of God. Because we can't come up with an adequate strategy for preparing our minds for action. We can't come up with an adequate curriculum for being sober-minded. That's what God has done for us sovereignly in His Word and in the preaching of the Word. That's why the preaching of the Word is the central act of the Christian church because God calls persons, sinners, to His Son through the preaching of the Word then God prepares the saints. Let's use these words for action and to be sober-minded, to know what we need to know, to be who we need to be by the teaching of his word. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, another thing that has come to us is the realization that many Christians had come to expect far too much from this age. Too many Christians had come to expect far too much from this government. Far too many Christians had come to expect too much from this culture that was wrong. We are to keep our minds set fully on the grace that will be brought to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The declaration of the gospel, we've not been bought with perishable things such as silver or gold. We've been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb and through the Father's grace, by his power and sovereignty, we are now believers in God. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, finally. Is it good news that we are elect exiles? I think there are a lot of Christians who would say, you know, that's really bad news, but I guess we just need to know it. It's not bad news. It's good news. 
Because it's really bad news if this world is what we expect to deliver on the ultimate promises of God. It never will. It never could. We set our minds fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then we understand, just as we are told here in this precious text, we hold fast to the gospel. Everything revealed by God is the good news that was preached to us. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. Father, we pray that you will use your word, use these words, use these texts. Use this precious text from 1 Peter, your servant, to ground us in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be to your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Muller, for preaching God's word to us today. Uh, we're going to close our service as we normally do. Just um, whenever the word of God is open, it's really a call, a call to respond. And uh, certainly we, the, the gospel has been offered today, what Christ did on the cross. Uh, for those who uh, in these last days would repent of their sins and believe on him, uh, eternal life and forgiveness in him. Maybe the Lord has revealed some things on your heart in, in the giving of this message uh, that you need to get right with him. This is a time to respond in faith to what we've heard. Let's stand together in hope and sing as we conclude our service together.